Good morning. It is Kale and Company live here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. Great to have you with us on this ninth day of November. Mark it down, folks. First snowfall of the winter, and I have my first cold of the winter. Hopefully it's the first and last for the cold. The snow we need, you know, because it's it's white gold uh, for New Hampshire and its ski areas, which uh, have, in recent years, suffered through some tough times because of the lack of snow, or even if there wasn't a lack of snow, the perception in the minds of people who travel to New Hampshire to ski, uh, they perceived that there wasn't much snow uh, in New Hampshire or Vermont or Maine, uh, for that matter. So they, they would stay uh, in, in their homes in Massachusetts, uh, New York, Rhode Island, Connecticut, wherever they may be. So we hope this will be a, a strong, not only ski season, but a, a great uh, snowmobile uh, season uh, as well. And uh, we're we're getting off to a a start this morning. So mark that down. November 9th, our first snowfall of the 2023-24 winter season. Uh, By the way, I wanted to mention that the uh, New Hampshire State Veterans Cemetery in Boscoan is going to hold a placement of flags in honor of Veterans Day. That's going to take place today from 1 to 3. It's at the New Hampshire State Veterans Cemetery. What an impressive uh, cemetery that is. Uh, you, If you have never taken the opportunity uh, to go there, uh, they have done a magnificent job. And uh, you will uh, learn a lot about the people uh, that served our country uh, from New Hampshire at the uh, Veterans Cemetery at 110 DW Highway in Boscoan. And uh, while the focus of Veterans Day uh, is on our living veterans, the placement of the flags on the graves of veterans is a long-standing tradition that honors all of those who have served. The cemetery was established in 1997 with the current cemetery development of 19 acres, providing adequate burial sites for veterans and their dependents for years to come. The master plan has six additional phases For future expansion, the New Hampshire State Veterans Cemetery was the first state cemetery east of the Mississippi River to allow the internment of non-resident veterans, and the public is invited to attend. And that's today, between 1 and 3 at the New Hampshire State Veterans Cemetery at 110 DW Highway in Bosco, and I'm uh, certain they will hold the ceremony, uh, even though we uh, have had some uh, light snow uh, this morning. I'm sure the ceremony will uh, go on as scheduled. Uh, Today, by the way, Thursday, November 9th, is Go to an Art Museum Day. Do you know we have a great art museum, uh, renowned as one of the best art museums, if not only in the country, perhaps the world, in the uh, Courier Gallery art, a Gallery of Art in Manchester. I'm sure many of you have uh, visited the Courier uh, over the years. So uh, today is uh, Go to an Art Museum Day. It's also National Fried Chicken Sandwich Day. National Fried Chicken Sandwich Day. I've had uh, too many of those uh, in my day. Uh, National Greek Yogurt Day and... 
Something you don't see too much in these parts. National Scrapple Day. Now, don't ask me to define what is in Scrapple. If somebody knows, feel free to give us a call. 603-224-1450. I was doing a radio show probably, uh, I would say it's at least 15 years ago at another station. And it must have been National Scrapple Day on, on that occasion. And uh, my, my partner at the time, Peter St. James, and I were talking about Scrapple and, and how there were really only you know, certain areas of the country where you can get Scrapple on a regular basis at restaurants. I think if we, you know someone looked hard enough in the, the Concord, uh, Manchester, Lakes Region area that you could find Scrapple somewhere, I really haven't looked that hard. But what happened was we were talking about Scrapple on the air and how much when we went to Pennsylvania or the Pennsylvania Dutch area that, you know, Scrapple was, uh, you know, like a part of the option for for breakfast, like uh, like home fries, for example. So anyway, we had a gentleman uh, before our show ended on that day, stop by the radio station and drop off some Scrapple for Peter St. James and myself. I couldn't believe it. I could not believe it. So uh, Peter and I uh, were, were given Scrapple from this uh, gentleman who was a uh, food delivery guy and happened to have some Scrapple uh, in his truck. So, you know, if anybody's, you know, in the Concord area uh, today, uh, riding around with some Scrapple in the back of your truck, uh, stop by and see us here at uh, 37 Reddington Road. I'd be uh, very happy uh, to get a package of Scrapple. It may cure the common cold. Who knows? But today is, in fact, National Scrapple Day. And again, the uh, it's kind of like hot dogs in the fact that the uh, ingredients are kind of uh, mysterious. And you probably would not want to see it made. Uh, but it says Scrapple, also known by... The Pennsylvania Dutch name, Panhas, P-A-N-N-H-A-A-S, is traditionally a mush of pork scraps and trimmings combined with cornmeal and wheat flour, often buckwheat flour and spices. The mush is formed into a semi-solid set loaf and slices of the scrapple are then pan-fried before serving. It is a tasty treat, I will tell you. And uh, I haven't had any in years. Years, folks. So I might try to find some after the show today and, and commemorate uh, National Scrapple Day. Uh, by the way, you might have missed it earlier this week. Uh, Walmart, and I'm sure we have some Walmart shoppers. Attention, Walmart shoppers. No, oh, that's Kmart shoppers. Uh, Walmart announced Tuesday that it is making changes to create a calmer shopping experience, at least for a few hours every day in all of its U.S. stores. It's set to be uh, implemented tomorrow. Actually, as a matter of fact, November 10th, the changes include setting in-store TV walls to a static image 
turning off the radio, I guess that means the, the music that they play at uh, Walmart, and lowering the store lights. Walmart said it learned during a pilot test for the back-to-school shopping period that these efforts are especially beneficial to neurodiverse individuals, both customers and employees, with sensory disabilities. Now, according to a Walmart spokesperson, earlier this year we took a step in making shopping in our stores more inclusive for those with sensory disabilities by taking measures to create a less stimulating environment for a couple of hours each Saturday. Now, the feedback of the pilot program was overwhelmingly positive. That's what the retailer said in a blog post earlier this week. These changes may have seemed small to some, but for others, they transformed the shopping experience. Now, Walmart isn't alone uh, in making these changes, but joins a growing group of retailers and uh, entertainment venues, such as movie theaters and restaurants, who are becoming more cognizant of the very needs of customers. And it's a smart business strategy, too, said Bert Flickinger. Bert Flickinger. Sounds like a made-up name, doesn't it? Bert Flickinger. Uh, retail expert and managing director of uh, Retail consultancy, consultancy Strategic Resource Group. During the pandemic, Walmart also set special morning shopping hours for older vulnerable consumers. And uh, Flickinger went on to say, at a time when discounters are competing more aggressively with each other for consumers' dollars, Walmart is not only building some goodwill with its shoppers, but these changes could also bring more shoppers into the stores and keep them shopping there longer. Now, here's the bottom line. Walmart said the sensory-friendly hours will take place from 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. local time, seven days a week, in all Walmart U.S. and Puerto Rico stores. And there is not a planned end date. So this is uh, going to continue for a while. And uh, Flickinger said that the morning time slot is especially conducive to shoppers who may have special requirements because it's not the busiest time of the day for Walmart stores. So there you have it. Walmart. You go in between 8 and 10, you won't see all the TVs uh, in motion. But that's okay. That's okay. If it helps some people, that's the bottom line. All right, we will take a quick break here. We're going to be talking about a very interesting story a little bit uh, later on in the program today. One that you might find intriguing concerning Disney. We will take a break. Kale and company will continue after these words. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Stay with us. Welcome back, Kale and Company Live here on WKXL 1450 on the venerable AM dial. There still is one, folks. Now, 103.9 FM in the Concord area, 101.9 FM in Manchester and well beyond. In fact, uh, 101.9 signal I got uh, uh, last night in Henniker. 
coming in loud and clear in Henniker. So uh, you can get it uh, in many, many places. So uh, check us out. Tell a friend. And if you uh, you know miss this show or any of the other great programming, live and local programming we have here on WKXL, uh, you can always access it at nhtalkradio.com. Or like if you... Uh, you know, go on vacation somewhere, get some scrapple in the Pennsylvania Dutch area of Pennsylvania. Uh, you can always listen online at uh, nhtalkradio.com. And uh, coming up in the next uh, half hour, we're going to be talking to a couple who uh, wrote a book called Disneyland on the Mountain. Greg Glasgow or Glasgow. I should know how to pronounce that because I'm part Scottish, but the glass, people pronounce it differently. Glasgow, Glasgow. And uh, his wife, Catherine Mayer, have written a book, Disneyland on the Mountain, Walt, the Environmentalists, and the Ski Resort, that never was. It was going to be uh, Disneyland at the top of a mountain, a vacation destination where guests could ski, uh, go ice skating, or be entertained by a uh, Disney character or some of the uh, audio animatronic bears that you see at Disney World or Disneyland. In the summer, uh, visitors could fish, camp, hike, take a scenic chairlift ride to the top of a mountain. It was the Mineral King Resort in Southern California, and it was Walt Disney's final passion project. But there was one major obstacle to Walt's dream, the growing environmentalist movement of the 1960s which continues to this day. Uh, anyway, that'll be in our next half hour. Now, how about a $2 bill? You know, people say you're you know, as wacky as a $2 bill or whatever, or maybe a $3 bill. Of course, I don't think there ever was, in reality, a $3 bill. But what if you walked into a store? I'm, I'm, can you imagine the looks you'd get? Like if you had a grocery order of like uh, 30 bucks, let's say, and you paid it off in all $2 bills. Can you imagine the looks you'd get? I mean, you don't see $2 bills in circulation very often. I think it's a good denomination. I don't know why there aren't more in distribution. I mean, uh, I think a $2 bill can be very useful. Anyway, uh, the venerable $2 bill has been around since the 18th century. Did you know that? Yet. It has long been seen as somewhat of a stepchild in U.S. currency. And uh, while it has long had a dubious image, $2 currency remains in circulation. I took one out of circulation, actually, and put it on my refrigerator. If you were to walk into my kitchen, uh, atop the refrigerator, right there in the, in the freezer area, right? As you open the freezer door, you will see... A $2 bill. Now, so they are in circulation, but I imagine a lot of people take them out of circulation so they can put them somewhere. I don't know. Save them as souvenirs. And then if you, you know, save those $2 bills, then you'll never go broke, I guess. If you have the right bill, even one of the most recent versions of the $2 bill, it might, just might, fetch you big bucks. U.S. currency auctions has estimated that an uncirculated $2 bills, uncirculated $2 bills from 1890 could sell for $4,500. Uh, 
uncirculated bills from nearly every year after 1862 to 1917 are estimated to be worth $1,000 or more. But take heart, because newer bills may also carry value. $2 bill released in 2003 sold in an auction for $2,400, according to Heritage Auction, the world's largest numismatic auction house. That particular bill had a very low serial number for the 2003 series. It was later resold for $4,000, and Heritage, the auction house, now estimates that it could be purchased for $6,000. That's $6,000, folks, for a $2 bill. Over the years, the $2 bill developed a tarnished reputation. Some considered it to be bad luck. Others saw it as a bill that was handed out for ill deeds, such as bribing voters, according to CNN. The U.S. Treasury tried to popularize the bill in the early 20th century, but that effort failed, and for a period of time, the government stopped issuing new $2 bills. And the bill returned as the United States approached its bicentennial in 1976, and the $2 bill remains in circulation today. But I imagine some people like me uh, take them out of circulation if they ever get one. That's what I did. I'm sure many millions have done that as well. Uh, Many Americans have uh, pretty dubious assumptions about the $2 bill. Nothing happened to the $2 bill. still being made. Uh, It's still being circulated, according to Heather McCabe, who's a writer who runs a blog called Two Buckaroo, T-W-O, Two Buckaroo, that uh, chronicles her spending with twos and people's reactions. See, there you go. She told CNN, Americans misunderstand their own currency to the extent that they don't use it. Do you know who's on the $2 bill? Anybody? Can I see a show of hands? Don't take the hands off the wheel. But uh, have a guess who's on the $2 bill right now? Thomas Jefferson is on the $2 bill. Primary author of the Declaration of Independence on the uh, front. And on the back is a portrait of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. The aim was to cut the number of $1 bills in circulation and save the Treasury money on production costs, CNN said. But that relaunch in 1976 also failed. People hoarded them instead of spending them. See, there you go, like me. I'm hoarding one $2 bill, but... Multiply that by millions of people from coast to coast, from sea to shining sea that are hoarding $2 bills, and you can see why they're not in popular circulation. In 2022, just a year ago, there were an estimated 1.5 billion, with a B, 1.5 billion $2 bills in circulation, according to the Federal Reserve. But that accounts for just a tiny fraction of all currency, about $54.1 billion in circulation uh, last year. So $1.5 billion, $2 bills, and currency overall about $54.1 billion 
in circulation in 2022. The Treasury Department's Bureau of Engraving and Printing expected to release 204 million new $2 bills in 2022. And a spokesperson said that it's a very useful thing to pay for a small, a small amount. But, I, you know, you can imagine the looks you would get. I wonder if you could go into a bank. I don't, I don't know the answer to this. I'm just throwing it out. If you went into the bank and they gave them a uh, $100 bill, let's say, let's, I want uh, 52s, $52 bills in exchange for my $100 bill. Do you think even a bank would have $52 bills? I doubt it. I doubt it. But then, then if they did take those $2 bills, I wonder if Kino machines take $2 bills. Hey, that's a good question. Do Kino machines take $2 bills? Do they recognize a $2 bill? Hmm. I don't think I'll use my $2 bill, the only $2 bill I have, to put that to the test. Oh, we'll have to find out if... Uh, somebody has a multiple of $2 bills, try it in a keto machine and see if it works. All right, we'll take a break. Enough talk about Walmart and $2 bills. We'll move on to the important things in life, like a proposed Disneyland on the mountain, which was a real proposal back in the 60s, folks, and uh, it was very controversial. As a matter of fact, it uh, went all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. We'll take a break. Kale and Company Live continues right here on WKXL NHTalkRadio.com. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Stay with us. Welcome back. It is Kale and Company Live here on WKXL NHTalkRadio.com the 9th day of November and we've had our first snowfall of the winter season here in New Hampshire and we're going to talk a little uh, wintry stuff right now here on the program. New book just out, Disneyland on the Mountain, Walt the Environmentalists and the ski resort that never was. And uh, joining me this morning on the program, the co-authors of the book, Greg Glasgow. Uh, Greg, is it Glasgow or Glasgow? Uh, Glasgow. Glasgow. Okay. I'm part Scottish, so I should know, but I just wanted to ask. <laughs> and uh, Catherine Mayer is joining us as well. They are a married couple who uh, collaborated uh, on this book, a very uh, intriguing book. And uh, are you in Colorado right now? We are, yeah. Oh, all right. So it's a couple hours earlier in Colorado. Thank you for uh, getting up <laughs> so early in the morning to chat with us here in New Hampshire. We've had some snow this morning, our first of the winter. Have you guys had snow oh. yet? We did, not that long ago. So, uh, so yeah, we live up to our to our name <laughs> in Colorado here. <laughs> well, I'm sure this is a, a project uh uh, that very few people were uh, aware of, especially here on the East Coast, maybe, and and some of our memories don't go back to uh, the '60s. Uh, you know, when did Walt Disney come up with the idea to build a, a Disney branded ski resort in Southern California? Sure, he had come up with this idea. I mean, he had been a skier actually for for several years, as early as the 1930s. But it was in the it was in 1960 when Walt was actually chairman of pageantry 
at the 1960 Winter Olympics in Squaw Valley, which, again, a lot of people don't realize about him. So he kind of had a front row seat at seeing, you know, people, a bunch of athletes. He was basically on the slopes at the, in the mountains, looking around. He was basically charged with entertaining the athletes there. So he kind of brought together this uh, combination of spectacle and sport, and it was there that he kind of got the idea for starting his own ski resort and year-round recreation center. So, and we know that no one has or ever had the imagination of uh, of Walt Disney. What did what did Walt uh, envision uh, for this uh, resort? He really wanted it to be a year-round um, entertainment and recreation complex, so summer activities as well as winter activities. Um, there are going to be no cars allowed, so he really wanted to keep it sort of this European-style resort with hotels and restaurants and shopping. And, um, you know, in addition to skiing, there was going to be ice skating and sledding and things, so a very family-friendly and very sort of to celebrate the the nature and the natural beauty of the area there as well. Well, yeah, it sounds all, all so innocent, but uh, this really became a, a very controversial project. Why did it become such a, a, a political hot potato, as it were? It went, this wound up going to the Supreme Court. Why? Yeah, it was pretty incredible once we, once we realized that and, and found all that out, obviously, in our research. But it was kind of a number of things. I mean, some of the contention, it was it was really led by the Sierra Club, who was, you know, one of the, the largest environmental groups of the time. And they really didn't want a development there because they felt it would mar the beautiful area. There was, there was a, a number of different questions um, as far as, for one, they had to build for this development to happen. There was going to have to be a large all-weather highway built. Um, in the area, and it would actually have to cut through Sequoia National Park, which was right next to this area where they were building it. Um, and so there was questions about that. There was questions about how big it was. And really, the, I mean, the main point was people thought it was a very pretty area. There was a lot of concerns at the time, especially we're talking about the 1960s, the 1970s, of course. So there's there's quite a lot of movement in the environmental awareness and People not wanting to have every beautiful area developed, so so certainly a lot of activism came out of this. A lot of a lot of questions about it, and and again, I think a lot of it was spurred by by the time. It was just kind of you know, nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies. We're talking about a lot a lot of movement in, in this environmental space, and and the Disney development was was certainly ripe for a lot of that criticism. Now, now, did Walt Disney ever explore uh, other areas uh, for for the, a resort of this kind? He looked. It's interesting. He actually looked uh, at the beginning. He actually even looked in Colorado and a few other places in California. But once he settled on this Mineral King area, they you know were focused on that for a while. And then when the Supreme Court case happened and there was a few other hangups. They actually looked at another area in California near Lake Tahoe called Independence Lake, and they got somewhat serious about that area as well, but that ended up kind of fizzling out, um, and they turned their attention back to the Mineral King Project. So any uh, long-lasting effects from the, the Mineral King battle? 
there were a lot of lasting effects. There were lasting effects. It really, the Supreme Court case kind of laid out sort of a new roadmap for how to file cases like this, these environmental cases. And then it also had a big impact on skiing. I mean, a lot of the ski resorts we see today, of course, are very similar to what Walt had in mind, yeah. big family-friendly resorts with you know lodging and shopping and dining. And it had an influence on the Disney company as well. They learned some lessons from this that they took on to other projects. And you even see some reflections of some of the design and some of the concepts in other properties and things, and even... If people know the Country Bear Jamboree uh, at the Disney parks, that was actually originally created for the Mineral King project. So wow. it's interesting to find all these sort of tendrils that reached out after the project failed. And, and so the uh, the big hang-up was the, uh, the access roads leading uh, to that area? Yeah, so the, the road... At the time, this area in in Mineral King, California, and Mineral King, just so people know, is kind of smack in the middle of the state. It was equidistant from Los Angeles and California, and um, it was again, it was a very pretty area. It was right on the, it was right next to Sequoia National Park. However, it was extremely difficult to get to. It was. You know, people had to take this extremely winding, primitive road. It would take forever. It would be kind of dangerous, more or less. There's ruts in the road. So for this development to actually, you know, successfully happen, there would have to be this all-weather highway. Um, and it would cut through the Sequoia National Park, which people were extremely upset over, considering, of course, it was a national park. So, so there's a lot of contention over this road, and, and the road actually involved a number of different politicians, a lot of interesting things that you could read about in our book, which is which is interesting. Ronald Reagan gets involved in it. Um, uh, Stuart Udall and, and a lot of interesting a lot of interesting players get involved in the in the road dilemma. Uh, it's a, a an extremely intriguing book and, and about a topic that uh, probably most people have not uh, given a lot of thought to uh, over the last uh, uh, 50 or so years, 50 or 60 years uh, between uh, that time and now. Uh, you, you've done hundreds, obviously hundreds of hours of research uh, on, on this topic. Uh, where do you guys come down on it? What do, what do you think? We, you know, we talked to so many people on both sides and we did so much research that we really, honestly, it sounds sort of like a cop-out, but we really do see both sides of the story. I mean, we came into this project as Disney fans, so we certainly would be very interested to see what a Disney ski resort would look like. It probably would have been incredible. But, you know, we also really respect and understand the points of view of the environmentalists, the people that wanted to save this area. We talked to some of the people that own summer cabins there and things like that. So uh, it's hard for us to really say exactly where we stand. But we hope, you know, we try to really present both sides equally in the book. So we hope people can read it and, and come away maybe with their own thoughts of what they think should have happened. Was it pretty much like a lot of things that Walt Disney developed? Was it was it uh, too much ahead of its time, perhaps? It's so. I mean, that's, you bring up such a good point. I mean, this is so incredible that it Walt Disney, as usual, was was exactly ahead of his time when he was creating this. This was actually, and to give people a you know context as to when we're talking about, 
This is in the early, this starts in the early 1960s. So this was only a few years after he opened Disneyland. And this was actually before he, um, the Disney company had opened uh, the Florida Project, which then became Walt Disney World. So this was their second experiential project. And um, so what he was creating was extremely ahead of his time um, because ski resorts at the time were were very kind of bare bones. They really attracted mostly just athletes. Um, they, they didn't really attract families or anything like that. And Walt, you know, Walt was thinking really big when he was creating this. It was going to be restaurants. It was going to be a number of different hotels. It was going to have activities year-round. It was also going to rely a lot on technology. That was a big, big thing he was going to do. He actually said no cars were going to be allowed. He was going to have basically what is now known as the people mover um, in the Disney parks, and it would um, move people in this kind of trackless technology that would um, that would move people throughout the resorts, and so yeah, he was he was extremely ahead of his time when yeah. he was thinking about it. I don't know if that was to his detriment or not, yeah. but no, no but, doubt, um, as as he as great. he was in so many things, there's no doubt about yeah. that. Yeah, it's it's a great book. Can can you stay with us for a few more minutes? We have to take a quick break sure. here. The book is uh, thank you. Uh, the book is Disneyland on the Mountain. Walt, the environmentalists, and the ski resort. That never was. Greg Glasgow and Catherine Mayer are the authors of, of this uh, terrific book, especially if you're a fan of uh, Disney and all the things that uh, Walt and the Disney Corporation have created over the years. This is something that didn't get done, folks, but still a very intriguing story. We'll take a break. Kale and Company continues here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com, presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Welcome back, Kale and Company Live here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. Streaming around the world and around the clock. And uh, we are joined today by uh, the authors of the book, Disneyland on the Mountain, Walt the Environmentalist and the Ski Resort that Never Was, Greg Glasgow and uh, Catherine Mayer, uh, a married couple collaborating on this book. Uh, This is the, the first time you have collaborated, correct? Yes, I mean we've collab- we both are writers yep. for our day jobs, and we do freelance work. So we've collaborated on a few articles, and of course we sort of share work back and forth. But definitely the first time we've done something even close to this <laughs> scale. So it was quite the challenge, but it was a lot of fun too. <laughs> what 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 were some of those challenges? I was going to say we're we're still married, so I. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's step. That's step. That's step one. So. Uh, <laughs> Um, you know, I think it's 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 it, it's it's hard to collaborate on something of this scale. I feel like with 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 writers, you know, they're trying to figure out kind of what their voice and stuff like that. But but surprisingly, it actually was was a lot of fun. It was really rewarding, and um, you know, it's been was kind of interesting that we've we've told people is that, you know, when you think of, you know, maybe people who are working on something or who are writing partners, maybe, you know, of course they're going back and forth on stuff and they're, and maybe they have certain amounts of time that they're, that they're working on things and working hours. But of course, since we're, we're a married couple, we live together and we're, we're basically living this book, 
you know what I mean? Like it was, it was a way different situation because the book was constantly on our, on our mouths and we were constantly talking about it and, you know, talking about ideas when we were cooking dinner or walking our dog and, and things like that. So, so, so definitely really, um, it was really rewarding. I mentioned earlier you were big fans of, of Disney. What, uh, what was it that really piqued your interest enough to, uh, to write a book about it? Yeah, Catherine grew up as a Disney person, and she got me into it once we started dating. And what really piqued our interest was that we, we found out back in 2018, we took a trip to the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco, and they had a mention of this project on a timeline there, and what really got us was that one of his partners on the project was a guy named Willie Schaeffler, who actually at the time was the head ski coach at the University of Denver. Wow. So University of Denver is where Catherine went to school, and it's actually where we both met working there. So that really like intrigued us that there was this DU connection, this Colorado connection, and that got us looking into it a lot more than, of course, realized there was this whole Supreme Court case and this environmental battle, and it just seemed like such a great story. I mean, in general, too, it's one of those things where, you know, when people think about Disney and even people that know a lot about Disney, um, you know, and I, I would put, I would have put myself in that camp, you know, people know about Disneyland, they know about Walt Disney World, they know about the movies, but they don't always know about kind of these unbuilt projects. Certainly they don't know about you know, this one in particular had a lot of controversy, which was really intriguing to us. And always, it, it was certainly great to explore something that, again, we, you know, when we first started researching it, there there really wasn't much out there. Um, so, you know, telling a story about really kind of an unknown piece of Disney history was, was extremely fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Were there other Disney projects that uh, that never made it? There were a bunch, yeah. I, I mean, there was, uh, I don't even remember <laughs> what they all were. There was something in Virginia. There was something in St. Louis. There were, you know, many projects that they had that failed, but we're not sure that there were any that really hit this level of the sort of controversy. I mean, this really never got off the ground in terms of getting built. I mean, nothing was ever constructed, but just the the controversy that surrounded it and going all the way to the Supreme Court, we think is pretty unique sort of in the annals of, of Disney history and the, that list of never built projects. Uh, no, no doubt about that. This, uh, for those who don't know, is the 100th anniversary of uh, Disney. And, of course, uh, they've made significant contributions to, to our culture. H- how did things change uh, uh, with Disney uh, after the death of Walt Disney in 1966? Sure. I mean, that was such a pivotal time for the Disney company and obviously an extremely sad time. And what is interesting is that we go into detail quite a bit about about Walt's death in our book because that was smack in the middle of this Mineral King ski resort project, and it was extremely. It was, I mean, it was heartbreaking to research. It was heartbreaking to write about. It was what was interesting about it at the time was, you know, for instance, when we were writing about the ski resort, this was. I mean, that was actually an. Extreme, extreme passion project for Walt. He he really wanted to make this thing happen. And when he had passed away, his older brother Roy Disney took over, and he actually didn't know that 
this would be a good investment, essentially. He wasn't really sure about it. But the the very next day after Walt passed away, he basically issued a, a statement to Disney employees and also the entire world saying, you know, I'm going to make Walt's dreams come true. I'm going to make the ski resort happen. I'm going to make the Florida project, which became Disney World, happen. I'm going to do what he wanted because that really drives us, essentially, is what he said. And, you know, years and years later, we still see that. And I think that's what's so unique and kind of beautiful about about the Disney company is that they, they have kept, even though Walt obviously has been gone for, for so many years, they've really kept his spirit alive um, in many ways and and wanted to, you know, continue that. You walk into the parks, you see a statue of Walt, and we kind of celebrate him, and, and the, the Disney company had done a short, an animated short uh, just a couple weeks, a week or so ago for the 100th anniversary, and, and they had this kind of moment where they celebrated Walt Disney, and I thought that was really, really nice. But, um, but yeah, we, we continue to see it influence, which I think is, is really great. No doubt about it. And uh, again, the book is uh, Disneyland on the Mountain, Walt the Environmentalist and the Ski Resort that Never Was, Greg Glasgow and Catherine Mayer. Any any more plans to uh, collaborate on a book? (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I mean, now that we have our research process in place and all this kind of thing, we're definitely sort of tossing around other ideas in this sort of same history, pop culture vein. I mean, the research part of this was so rewarding and, and so much fun, kind of a treasure hunt. So we have a few other ideas that we're looking at, and hopefully we'll settle on one soon and get going on the next project. Outstanding. And uh, I thank you both so much for getting up early this mo- this morning in Colorado to uh, join <laughs> us on the program. The book is uh, fascinating. I recommend it to anyone, whether they're uh, a fan of, of Disney or not, because it's a very uh, intriguing story. So thank you very much and uh, uh, most success uh, on the book. Oh, thank you so much. Thank Our you. pleasure to be here. Really appreciate the time. All right. Uh, thank you so much for joining us uh, this early hour in uh, in Colorado. And uh, we had our first uh, snow of the season uh, today uh, here in New Hampshire. So we're coming up to uh, the, the end of this edition of Kale & Company. I want to remind you again that uh, the New Hampshire State Veterans Cemetery is going to hold a placement of flags in honor of Veterans Day today, this afternoon from 1 to 3, at the New Hampshire Veterans Cemetery, 110 Daniel Webster Highway in Boscoan. And uh, while the focus of Veterans Day is on our living veterans, the placement of the flags on the graves of veterans is a long-standing tradition that honors all of those who have served. The uh, cemetery uh, was established in 1997 with the uh, current development of 19 acres uh, providing adequate burial sites for veterans and their dependents for years to come. So that is today between 1 and 3 o'clock. Don't forget, tomorrow here on WKX, uh, WKXL from uh, a little after 8 till 9 o'clock, it is the Friday Fun Bunch with Tom Raffio, President and CEO of Northeast Delta Dental, and our resident flick chick, Kitty Ray. We'll have a lot of fun in the studio. We'll have uh, donuts and coffee with you uh, tomorrow morning right here on WKXL, nhtalkradio.com. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental.
And I think I'll go out right now and try to find myself some Scrapple. Because it is, after all, National Scrapple Day. Maybe I could pay for it with a $2 bill. Who knows? But I'm not giving it up. I'm not giving up my only $2 bill. Forget that. Folks, remember, always look on the bright side of life. Have a great Thursday, everybody.